Section three of Stories from the Detectives Album by Wife Wander, also known as Mary Fortune. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. Checkmate and Revenge. The events I am about to relate to you happened in one of the sister colonies, and so long ago that I need feel no hesitation in relating them, and my connection with the affair was purely the result of accident. It is not at all an unfrequent occurrence for a wife to take out a warrant against an absconding husband, but for a husband to move heaven and earth in search of a runaway wife is, indeed, a rare fact. Mr. Barnsley did not, indeed, at first, take out a warrant against his missing partner, for he was one of those asses in the shape of men who believe in a woman when her folly is patent to every one else, but he came to our office and offered no end of tin if we could manage to trace her. The case was put into my hands. Barnsley furnished me with some of the following particulars, the rest I found out for myself. He was a rather wealthy squatter, of a soft and easy disposition, and had married a girl of whom little was known, save that she had come out from England two or three years previous, with a widowed mother since dead. She was educated and talented, and had taught music and singing successfully in the aristocratic suburbs of Melbourne, until she fell in with Barnsley at the home of one of her pupils, and played her cards so well as to become Mrs. Barnsley after a very short courtship. They had been married eighteen months, and now she had left him. "'Did Mrs. Barnsley give you no hint whatever of her intention?' I asked of the anxious and worn-looking man. "'No, not a word. I had not the least, the most distant idea that she even contemplated the possibility of such a step.' "'You had no quarrel, no dispute in the matrimonial way?' "'None.' We parted in the morning as usual, my wife being going on a shopping expedition as I understood. The carriage returned without her, and I have not seen or heard of her since. Perhaps she has gone to visit some friends. No, no, I have telegraphed everywhere. She has taken all her jewels and something like a thousand pounds in cash. How did she procure so large a sum? She has had carte blanche, said the soft simpleton, ever since our marriage. Only the morning she left I gave her a signed cheque to fill up as she wished. She filled it up and received at the Bank of Victoria for one thousand pounds. Now you know, it was utterly impossible for a man of my calibre to respect such an uxorious fool as this, and I was glad to get rid of him after having obtained a photo of the missing dame. I confess to you that I was surprised at the pictured form I saw before me, and began to make some excuses for the man I had just been branding as a simpleton of the first water. Let me see if I can describe Mrs. Barnsley to you. The photo represented a girl of apparently not more than twenty-one or two, though I discovered afterwards that she was a few years older. A more fascinating and bewitching countenance I have never looked upon, and it was what it is the fashion to call beauté du diable that evinced itself in the expression of the almost perfect face. A slender and beautifully moulded figure was attired in a Spanish costume, and the rich lace mantilla fell upon snowy shoulders over a high gilt comb, and encircled gracefully a lovely face, with lips like coral and eyes like jet. A most magnificent head of hair was half hidden by the lace, and it was black as coal and glossy as satin. In a perfectly formed hand she held, coquettishly, an open fan of black and gold, with which she half shaded the lovely face, and from behind which she peeped in the most bewitching way possible. Well, I ruminated, your appearance is prononcé enough. There ought to be no difficulty in tracing you. Whether you are worth the trouble or not is another question. I was, however, wrong. For several weeks passed, and no trace of Mrs. Barnsley could be discovered. I had, in ways of our own, which you are well aware are not overly cleanly ways, found out a good deal of the private habits of the lady in question. She had quite abandoned herself to the life of pleasure open to her by her fortunate marriage, and attended opera, theatre, and all sorts of amusements to her heart's content. It was patent to everyone but Barnsley himself that she simply tolerated her doting husband as a machine for signing cheques, and her jewellery was stated to have been of an almost unbelievable value for a person in her position in life. She had been rather a favourite in her own particular set, being liberal and open-handed at her husband's expense, but she made few intimate acquaintances. She had encouraged talent, too, and one of the most frequent visitors at her St Kilda villa was the talented tragedian Smeldon, who had played for some months in Melbourne during the previous season. Well, we could not find her, and we gave up the search. Mr Barnsley retired to one of his favourite stations to indulge his growing melancholy, 
and the affair of Mrs. Barnsley's disappearance had ceased to be a nine days' wonder when I was sent on duty to Dunedin in New Zealand. In transacting the business I had in hand, I observed the walls posted with huge bills notifying the appearance in Hamlet of the well-known Smeldon under the management of my old friend, Dan Westerfield, at the Royal. I had almost forgotten the Barnsley episode when the name of Smeldon recalled it to me, and when I had my own business fully on trun, I determined to call on Westerfield with a view to getting something out of him about Smeldon that might possibly throw a light on the Barnsley affair. I found my old friend, the manager, up to his eyes in business in his own room at the theatre, but he welcomed me very heartily nevertheless, and, after supplying wine and cigars, began to question me about our Melbourne theatrical affairs. His natural curiosity satisfied on that point, it was easy to lead the conversation toward his own doings and prospects in Dunedin. "'I've had a very fair season so far,' he said, "'but I'm in a heap of trouble now with some of my people.' "'As how?' I inquired. "'You know I have Smeldon. "'Yes, I noticed his name in the posters. "'And did you observe the name of the lady who plays Lady Macbeth?' "'No, I did not.' "'Well, before I explain any further, read that.' "'And he pushed an open letter toward me. "'It was written in a bold feminine hand "'and dated about a fortnight previous.' Westerfield Esquire, Manager, Theatre Royal, Dunedin. Sir, the writer of this is a young lady of a good and wealthy family, whose friends, as well as her own convictions, have assured her that she is possessed of a considerable natural talent as a dramatic actress. She is aware that business gentlemen have no patience or time to bestow on long epistles, so comes to the point at once. If you are disposed to bring out, under your management, on the boards of the Royal at Dunedin, the young lady whom you and the public will know as Miss Elena Chatteris. Her friends will furnish her with a valuable wardrobe and real jewels, and, in addition, pay you fifty pounds bonus for instruction in the technicalities of your art. Address, Post Office Wellington. Yours, etc., Helena Chatteris. Well, said Westfield, as I finished reading this odd communication, and by way of an Irishman's reply, I said, Well, also. I have engaged her, he went on. Oh, you have? And is she here? Yes, and was at rehearsal yesterday and the day previous. What is she like? A splendid-looking girl, with the air and wardrobe of a princess. She will be here presently. You must stop and see her. And talent? Has she any? Hum, hum, not much. But with such a face and figure, and with such dress and jewels, she is sure to take for a while at least. "'but it is through her I am in the mess I told you of. "'Smeldon has refused, or almost refused, to act with her. "'I don't know what the deuce to do.' "'Have you signed any agreement with the Lady Fair?' "'No, it was settled that none should be signed until after her first appearance.' "'Send her about her business, then?' "'Ah, wait till you see her, Sinclair, "'and then ask me to lose such an attraction for my stage.' "'And the fifty pounds,' I added with a laugh just as the door opened, and Smeldon himself walked into the room. Although I was not personally acquainted with this well-known actor of that day, I had of necessity seen him frequently, but, as you, my valued readers, may not have been so fortunate, I must describe him to you. He was, at that time, about thirty-five, and one of the handsomest men I have ever seen, but with an expression and air of cunning and self-conceit that destroyed the effect of his personal beauty. He was dark, and had a magnificent pair of black eyes, and had the reputation of bewitching most of the fair sex, who were unlucky enough to be considered worthy of his fascinating attention. "'Good morning, Mr. Westerfield. I hope I do not disturb you.' "'Not at all. Pray be seated, Smeldon. You need not mind the presence of Mr. Smith, a very old friend of mine. Mr. Smeldon, Mr. Smith.' And we were introduced, Westerfield being too wide awake to introduce me to anyone as Detective Sinclair. I bowed, and so did Smeldon, of course, and then I moved toward a window to permit of the manager and actor transacting their business more freely. The window was not, however, so far away as to prevent me from hearing the gist of their conversation, though my eyes were bent upon the newspaper I held in my hands. I heard that Smeldon was reiterating his objection to play with Miss Chatteris, and that had not an unimpeachable agreement been signed between them, he would have gone off and left Westerfield to do the best he could without his star. "'I think you are unreasonable, Smeldon,' Westerfield said, 
after a wordy argument had been carried on, Miss Chatteris will do you no discredit, and have I not pledged my word that if she does on her first night, I shall not engage her permanently? Just think of the expense I have been at, and now certainly disappointing the public at this time, when they have been worked up with advertisements and puffs, would irretrievably ruin me. And think of my reputation as an actor, which is of more value to me than yours to you as a manager, playing with a conceited amateur such as Miss Chatteris, who has considerably less talent than some of your ballet girls. I decidedly object to playing with her. I decidedly object to it. So do I, most decidedly, Mr. Smeldon, and it will be necessary for Mr. Westerfield to choose between you and me. I will not appear with you. The voice was a woman's, and guessing it to be that of Miss Chatteris, I turned around. She was standing just inside the door in a robe and jacket of black velvet trimmed with fur, and a dark Spanish hat drooping its handsome plumes over her brow and shoulder. She was certainly a beautiful woman, but appeared much older than I had fancied her to be. She looked thirty at least, and the hair which peeped from under the broad hat was a beautiful bright brown. Her eyes were dark and large, her parted lips showed teeth like pearl. I had certainly not seen her before as Miss Chatteris, yet somehow her face, or its expression, seemed too familiar to me. It was not a good face, and as I looked at it, it exhibited a will and a temper not pleasing in the face of a woman, whether faint or real. "'I beg your pardon, Mr. Westerfield, but I knocked. You were so much engaged in hearing this fine gentleman abuse me that you do not hear me. I assure you, Miss Chatteris, don't take the trouble to assure me of anything, sir. I am obliged to you for taking my part. But having heard Mr. Smeldon's decided objection to playing with me, and his opinion of my talent, I repeat, you can choose between us. I refuse to appear with him.' How fiendishly beautiful she looked as her temper got fairly the mastery, and her splendid eyes flashed like meteors. Mr. Westerfield felt particularly awkward, and looked so, while even Smeldon fidgeted on his seat, and at last rose to his feet. "'I cannot break my signed agreement with Mr. Smeldon,' the manager said, "'at least without such a forfeit as I cannot afford. Nor indeed do I wish to do so. I trust you and Mr. Smeldon will come to some better understanding and then things will go on smoothly enough. "'I am answered, sir,' she returned haughtily. "'You have treated me most shamefully, but I shall profit by the lesson in dealing with some other gentleman of your profession. Pray provide yourself with some other lady who may be more acceptable to Mr. Smeldon. I shall go and pack up my wardrobe.' And with a cool bow she turned toward the door and disappeared, leaving consternation behind her. "'You see what a mess I'm in,' said Westerfield, as Smeldon took his hat, and with a few words of adieu hastened out also. "'Who would be a theatrical manager, eh, Sinclair? What the deuce am I to do?' And the fine diamond on my friend's little finger gleamed among his dark curls as he scratched his head, by way, I presume, of getting some new idea out of it. "'If you had confined yourself to legitimate business, this would not have happened,' was my comforting rejoinder. Whatever possessed you to introduce this handsome adventuress as your leading lady is more than I can tell. Adventuress? How do you know Miss Chatteris is an adventuress? he cried. What adventuress would offer herself on such terms, and with the jewels of a queen? It is precisely because she has done so that I doubt the fair lady, I replied. She must have some ulterior motive, and as I am likely to be detained here for some time, I'll try if I cannot discover what that motive is. "'I wouldn't be a suspicious policeman for Miss Chatteris's fifty pounds,' he retorted sulkily. "'Miss Chatteris's promised fifty pounds,' I said, "'which you have not got, and never will get. "'Well, old chap, all this recrimination will not help me out of my difficulty. "'Try if you cannot suggest something. "'My suggestion would be that you consult Mr. Smeldon and take his advice. "'It is to his interest to help you in procuring a competent lady for the part. "'I believe you are right.' I have no doubt he is still in the theatre. I will go and look him up. But before he had time to rise, another knock was heard at the door, and Miss Chatteris once again made her appearance. She carried in both hands a Morocco-covered casket, mounted with silver, which she set upon Mr. Westerfield's table, as she inquired if he had any objection to give it a place in his safe, until she called again for it. "'You see, it is my jewel-case,' she explained, as she unlocked the casket and threw back the lid. 
and you are aware they are too valuable to be carried about in a cab while I make my arrangements for procuring another theatrical engagement. I could scarcely forbear an exclamation at the beauty and value of the gems so exhibited. On the upper tray lay a parure and tiara of diamonds, fit, as the manager had said, for a queen, with rings, earrings, and bracelet to match. Lifting the first tray, Miss Chatteris exposed a set of lovely pearls and emeralds in their velvet nests, and, lower down, a third with a magnificent suite of rubies. Wherever could this woman have procured such handsome jewels, I wondered to myself. Had she been an established and famous actress, it would not so surprise one, but an amateur. There is something which does not meet the eye in this. "'Will you take temporary charge of them, Mr. Westerfield?' "'Certainly, with pleasure, Miss Chatteris. I am only sorry that such a necessity has arisen. Is there no hope that you and Smeldon may yet agree to act together?' "'None whatever.' and the lady once more bowed herself out. She must have met the object of her aversion in the passage, as Smeldon entered instantly, requesting Westerfield's presence in the green room for a few moments, and the manager went out with him, motioning with his hand toward the jewel-case as he looked toward me, as much as to tell me to have an eye on the valuable deposit until his return. I sat for a few moments puzzling my brains over the strange fact of such valuable jewellery being in the possession of such a woman as I concluded Miss Chatteris to be, when, once again, to my great annoyance, the lady herself made her entrance. "'I have overlooked this brooch,' she observed, as she laid a handsome cameo on the table, and unlocked the casket again, and laid it in the upper tray. "'Will you kindly hand the key to Mr. Westerfield on his return?' And having relocked the case, she tendered me the peculiar little key, which, of course, I took from her hand. I watched her graceful figure as she carried the box nearer to Mr. Westerfield's desk, she had enveloped her form in a handsome velvet mantle, fur-trimmed to match her dress, and her back being toward me, I had a fine opportunity of admiring the graceful pose of her shapely head, and, as she turned her face a little, the most perfect profile imaginable. But it was not until she turned to address a few parting words to me that I again caught the wonderful resemblance of whom I could not recall, which had struck me at first sight of Miss Chatteris. On Westerfield's return, I delivered to him the precious key, and saw him lock both it and the casket in his private safe, the key of which he always carried about his person, and shortly after I made my adieu, having appointed a meeting for the following day. It is a tedious thing to wait for anything, but hanging round in a strange town where you have no acquaintances would try the patience of a saint. Under the circumstances, it was, perhaps, fortunate for me that I had fallen in with Westerfield and the Chatteris affair. It gave me something to think about, and as it eventuated, something also to do. In a late Melbourne daily, I saw the recommendation of a correspondent that a certain, to him, obnoxious individual should be sent to Captain Standish for the detective force, as no respectable firm would employ him in his obnoxious capacity as a spy. Now this is rather hard on us, and on Captain Standish, but I am afraid there is a considerable soupçon of truth in it. We do a good deal of dirty work which no man of sensitive and honourable feelings would think of putting a hand to. But que voulez-vous? All ranks and grades of society must be filled, and some of our chaps work with a will. I did in the Chatteris business, and I was never sorry for it. In the billiard-room of the hotel I had put up at, I encountered, rather to my surprise, Smeldon the actor himself, and rather more to my surprise still, he displayed an evident inclination to make friends with me. He had been, to say the least of it, rather cool at our introduction in the afternoon at my friend Westerfield's, and at first I fought rather shy of him. But business is business, and remembering that I might glean some information concerning the Chatteris from him, I met his advances halfway. We had a game or two, and I waited until he was warmed with the wine we had played for, when I ventured to ask him if he had made it up with Miss Chatteris. "'No,' he returned, and although I had no such intention at the time, I am glad she overheard my opinion of her. It settled the matter. I understand she has left the theatre. Yes, she left before I did. Do you know anything of the lady's antecedents? I know nothing whatever of her, save that she has a handsome face and an intolerable conceit of herself, and no more dramatic talent than that cue. But jewels fit for an empress, eh? Oh, we heard enough about them. No doubt they're paste. That they are not. I've seen them. She left her jewel-case with Westerfield for safety, until she is settled somewhere. 
What arrangement can Westerfield make to supply her place? He has, at my instigation, written to engage Madame Y. She is sure to accept, and will be here in time. She and I have played together before. That was all that passed between us on that subject, and shortly after Smeldon bade me good-night, and went his way. I followed him out onto the veranda, cigar in mouth, and was startled to find a woman's hand laid suddenly on my shoulder. Under the light of the door-lamp, a haggard-looking woman in shabby black attire was standing, and had darted forward and addressed me before Smeldon was quite out of sight. "'What did you call that gentleman? Is he not Smeldon, the tragedian?' "'Yes, Mr. Smeldon has just left.' "'Curse him!' she cried vehemently. "'When I am a ragged and homeless outcast. Curse him, I say. Curse him!' I thought the woman was crazy, as she shook her fist after the actor's retreating form, and I was interested. "'What has he done to you?' I asked. "'What has he done to me, eh? Never you mind. You'll not have to ask what I have done to him before long.' You'll see it. Watch him, Mr. Sinclair. Watch Smeldon. Ha! I know you, far as you are from Melbourne. Watch Smeldon, and then call yourself a D. With these words the speaker darted off, apparently in pursuit of Smeldon, and left me overwhelmed with astonishment. I had never seen the woman before to my knowledge, yet she seemed to know me quite well, and she had told me to watch Smeldon. What on earth was I to watch Smeldon for? Or what did she mean by casting such a slur on my detective abilities in connection with the watch she recommended? But wondering did not help me, and my first question, when I went to Westerfield next day, was if he knew anything of Smeldon's private character. I related my interview with the woman and her strange remarks, and my friend looked grave at once. "'I've heard that Smeldon is a married man,' he replied, and that his wife was the inmate of a private asylum in New South Wales. Could the woman you speak of possibly be her? She certainly looked and acted like a lunatic, I said. But how could she recognise me if she has been so long in confinement? You will recollect I am only retailing hearsay, Sinclair, for of course one would not touch on so delicate a subject to Smeldon himself. But I did hear that Mrs. Smeldon was at one time an inmate of a Melbourne private asylum. She may have seen you there. She might have. I have visited there. But if it is as you think... Would it not be as well to warn Smeldon, as she seems a desperate character, and threatened him roundly? I should not like to have a mad woman dogging my steps in the dark. It is such a delicate subject, Westerfield repeated. What a fortunate thing that S. did not take to Miss Chatteris, that is to say, if his wife is in Dunedin. It was jealousy that drove her crazy, at least so they say. There was no farther opportunity of discussing the actor's private affairs, for, in reply to a tap at the door, Westerfield's, come in, threw it back to admit the irrepressible Miss Chatteris. She looked exquisitely lovely, and was evidently dressed to kill. Instead of black velvet, she wore a handsome blue silk, richly embroidered in white satin stitch, and a bewitching blue satin bonnet encircled by a snow-white ostrich plume. Having bowed gracefully, and greeted both Mr. Westerfield and Mr. Smith, she seated herself in the chair placed for her by the manager, and stated that she had called for her jewel-case. "'I have decided to place them in the bank in the interim,' she said, "'and have a cab waiting at the door. I am much obliged to you, Mr. Westerfield, for giving them a night's lodging, and shall now relieve you of the responsibility.' With a few words of ordinary courtesy, Westerfield unlocked the safe and placed the case before her on the table, and then the key which he had laid on the shelf of the safe beside the casket. "'Shall I carry it to the cab for you, Miss Chatteris?' he asked. "'Although not heavy, it is bulky for a lady's hands.' "'Thank you. It is a pleasant burden,' she replied, laughing so as to show her lovely white teeth. "'But before I go, I wish to get out a brooch for ordinary wear.' And she placed the key in the ornamental silver lock, and threw back the lid of the casket. The open lid was between me and the jewels, so I did not at first understand the look of surprise that seemed to flash into the widely open Chatteris's eyes, and was reflected in my friend the manager's visage in a stare of horror and consternation. From the casket Miss Chatteris turned her eyes on Mr. Westerfield, who moved his to my face as if seeking inspiration or assistance. With much wonder I rose and looked over the open lid, and then I saw that the upper tray, at least, which had held the diamonds, was empty. Before a word was spoken, the beautiful woman lifted the first tray, and exposed the second, also empty, then the second, to find the same emptiness in the third. 
diamonds pearls and emeralds and rubies had all disappeared what does this mean mr westerfield she asked as she laid down the empty trays on the table and fixed her grand eyes steadily on the manager if it is a joke it is a very cruel one joke i assure you i know no more about it than you do i have never seen the interior of the casket since you locked it yourself i gave the key to mr smith she went on as she turned her gaze on me and he gave it to me i put both casket and key in the safe in my friend's presence and i have not seen either until now i believe you are aware of the value of my jewels she said so coolly as to raise my private suspicions for a woman does not usually lose her gems even when of simple value without making a fuss about it but perhaps mr smith is not aware that the property i left in your charge and of which i gave the key to him for you represented over a thousand pounds in value for which i can produce jewellers receipts the emphasis she placed upon the mr smith and the insolent and suspicious look which accompanied it raised my dander i know nothing and care less about the value of your jewellery madam i retorted shortly though i may have my own opinions about it but i tell you what i do know that you had better not cast any insinuations at me my name is not smith i am a melbourne detective and my character is of more value to me than a cartload of imitation jewels you are beneath the notice of any lady sir she said as her handsome face grew almost crimson with anger and perhaps some other feeling i have nothing to say to you it is to you mr westerfield i look for the restitution of my property for it was in his charge i left them no you didn't i interrupted for you yourself again opened your box after you had given it in charge to my friend and you will please to remember that neither he or i saw the contents after the last time you manipulated them miss chatteris's cheeks lost every particle of colour as i said this and she lifted one white and beringed hand partly before her face as if to ward off a blow it was then that in spite of the changed hue of hair and the different style of attire i recognised the likeness i could not previously locate it was to the portrait of mrs barnsley like a flash of light the whole thing was plain to me and i saw a way to get my friend out of his distressing position something he saw in my air probably gave him heart for he had been completely dumbfounded before miss chatteris had time to open her angry lips in reply to my abrupt accusation he pushed the casket toward the lady and opened the door of his room please take yourself and your property out of my room madam and if you have any charge to make against me make it through your solicitor i shall make it through the police she cried as she rose and pushed the chair back so roughly that it fell with a loud clatter if i were you madam i should try to keep out of the hands of the police as long as possible i retorted and i shall report you sir to your superior officers in melbourne a la bonne heure miss chatteris take care my report is not in before yours as the fair dame banged the door behind her in a very unladylike manner westerfield turned a face of consternation towards me here's a pretty go he said and she's left that cursed box behind her shall i run and send it after her by no means i'm delighted at the chance of having a look at it and i drew the handsome casket towards me as well as the empty velvet-lined trays scattered on the table as miss chatteris had left them what do you think of it sinclair he asked anxiously i think it's a swindle of some sort which i mean to find out in the meantime pass me a telegraph form like a good fellow and get a messenger to take a telegram to the office at once westerfield did as i requested and this is the telegram i dispatched without delay to victoria come at once to dunedin your wife is here need i add that it was addressed to mr barnsley as soon as this telegram was dispatched i commenced a close examination of the jewel case i had seen it consigned to the safe myself and of course never for one instant suspected westerfield of abstracting the jewellery he himself assured me that the key of the safe never left his own person so there was but one conclusion to come to miss chatteris as she chose to call herself must have managed to empty the box herself when she had come in during my friend's absence ostensibly to place in the casket a brooch she had forgotten but how had the feat been accomplished i carefully examined each tray as i replaced it without any satisfactory result until i came to the upper one which did not seem to take kindly to its position 
Pressing it down pretty sharply, there was a click, and the whole front of the box fell down upon the table. This was the secret, then. The front worked upon a hinge and a spring, and the three trays were easily drawn out together. Miss Chatteris had a double set of trays for that casket, and she had doubtless replaced the full ones by empty trays before delivering me the key on the previous day. "'But what good will this discovery do me?' questioned Westerfield ruefully. "'I am still responsible for the jewellery which disappeared while in my possession. "'The formation of this casket is sufficient evidence of intended trickery,' I replied. "'But we'll have more evidence than that before I'm done with Miss Chatteris. "'Meanwhile, lock up this valuable box and keep it safely.' I did not say a word to Westerfield as to my suspicions of the identity of the so-called Miss Chatteris, nor was it until I had got back to my hotel and put on my considering cap in the company of a good cigar only that the full meaning of the strange woman's words struck me. Watch Smeldon. Of course. What an ass I was. Was it not Smeldon who was such a favoured visitor of the fascinating Mrs. Barnsley in Melbourne? Was there a doubt that, in spite of their pretended enmity, they were accomplices in the swindle which sought my friend, the manager, as a victim? If there was, let me set my wits to work in order to elucidate it. I wanted to see that woman, whom I had set down as Mrs. Smeldon again, and I watched about the hotel door that evening, after having set the Dunedin police to find out where Miss Chatteris had taken up her abode. I had some hopes of Smeldon turning up again for his revenge at billiards, but he did not put in an appearance. In spite of that fact, however, I was not disappointed in seeing the woman. It was about half-past eleven, and I was about returning, after short turn down the street, in the direction she had taken on the previous night, when a dark shadow appeared at my elbow, and the same voice addressed me. "'Well, Detective Sinclair, were you wishing to see me tonight?' "'You have guessed it, Mrs. Smeldon. I was.' "'Ha! Huh, you know me, then.' "'Well, that shows that you have not been idle to-day, and as I also wanted to see you, I am here.' "'If you have anything private to say, we had better go over into the gardens. This is rather too public a spot for telling secrets.' And I led the way to a public reserve at a little distance. "'I want you to go a little farther than that,' she said. "'That is to say, if you want to find Mrs. Barnsley.' "'I have found her.' "'Ah, you're not so stupid as I thought,' she cried with a harsh laugh. "'But there is, maybe, some other reason for your wishing to see that lady at home.' "'There is. But I am puzzled to know how you found out so much about my private business.' "'It is connected with my private business, and I can't attend to the one without being mixed up with the other. "'Are you not afraid that Smeldon will find out you are here, and put you in the place you escaped from again?' I asked and with the question was aroused the slumbering devil in the poor distraught woman's breast. If, she almost shouted as she stopped suddenly and gesticulated violently in the street, if he finds out, it will be all the worse for himself. I am ready for him, I and willing. Seeing we had reached to the garden railings, I paused to question her before going any farther. I can't go with you, I said, unless you tell me why you want me. Where is it that you wish me to go? "'Haven't I told you that I am taking you to the private residence of Mrs. Barnsley? "'Why, you have a warrant for her arrest in your pocket-book.' "'Now this was quite true, though in what inexplicable manner this poor creature had become acquainted "'with the fact that I kept a profound secret was far beyond my comprehension. "'It was with the greatest difficulty that I had persuaded Mr. Barnsley to take out a warrant.' I had boldly tried to make the too confiding squatter see his wife's flight and extravagant use of his name to an unfilled cheque in the light all disinterested persons saw it, and I had so far succeeded that I carried the warrant in my pocket truly. But how did this woman know it? You wonder, she said with one of her wild laughs, but you will wonder more before you have done with me. Here we are. Prepare yourself to interview the fascinating Mrs. Barnsley. Now I had no intention of interfering with Mrs. Barnsley at present, but I was curious to know what connection my guide had with the fair deceiver, so I followed her to the back door of a pretty detached cottage, which we reached by a right of way and a door on the latch in a brick wall. At the back all was darkness and silence, but my guide drew me into a small chamber which appeared to be a sort of lean-to against the back wall of the cottage itself, and here, when she had closed the door, she began to chuckle to herself, as if in the height of enjoyment. I didn't at all like it, 
and I began to feel precious uncomfortable. What if I had allowed myself to be led into a trap by a mad woman? I say, my good woman, this won't do, you know, I remonstrated. Where have you brought me, and what have you brought me here for? Mind, I am not without both revolver and handcuffs, the use of which I am fully acquainted with. Are you afraid? she whispered with a sneering hiss. Where have I brought you, eh? Well, I'll tell you more than you ask. I have brought you to the residence of Miss Chatteris, with whom I engage to-day as general servant, and I brought you that you might see a favoured visitor of hers. There is a mark for your revolver, and a use for your handcuffs. As she uttered the words, she opened the door of a sort of closet, and pointed to a streak of light that appeared to permeate the wall from an inner chamber. The hint was not lost on me. Stepping forward, I placed my eye to the aperture, and there I saw a scene which, had it not been for the woman's words of preparation, would have astonished me. The room I looked into, in that most surreptitious manner, was, though small, handsomely furnished. A pleasant fire burned in a low grate, and upon a crimson-covered table lay a delightful little impromptu supper, or rather, the remains of one. More than one decanter, too, sparkled palely or redly in the lamplight. In a luxurious chair at one side of the fire lounged Miss Chatteris, in all the glory of full evening dress, and sparkling with gems, and on the other, with a cigar between his lips, and a half-full glass in his hand, sat no other than Smeldon himself. Now all this was very pleasant to me, as confirmatory of my own suspicion regarding the identity of Miss Chatteris with Mrs. Barnsley, but on the table among the glasses and decanters, but a little nearer to the lady's hand, lay an object that interested me far more than anything else in the room. You will understand the interest when I tell you that the object was a facsimile of the jewel-case in Westerfield's safe. They were evidently conversing about it, too, for he pointed towards it with his cigar, and, I fancy, looked angry and excited, while her fair brow was corrugated into unbecoming wrinkles. The woman did not, however, give me much time to examine their several expressions of countenance more closely, for she dragged me impatiently by the sleeve and whispered eagerly, "'Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to arrest her?' "'Arrest her?' no i'm not ready for that step yet what did i bring you here for then she cried on a fool's errand as far as your object is concerned but it was a lucky errand for me as it has turned out do you see that box on the table with the silver mounting yes what of it only that if you can get hold of that box between this and tomorrow night and let me have it in my hand for only five minutes you will get miss chatteris into as fine a mess as you could wish miss chatteris she repeated with a sneer never mind the name can you get the box easily tomorrow night she told me she was going to spend the evening out but i can't get the key she carries it at her watch chain it doesn't at all matter about the key was my response for of course i concluded that the key in westerfield's possession would fit the counterfeit casket if you don't help me to my revenge on that woman "'I'll do nothing for you,' she said vehemently as we emerged from the yard and gained the vicinity of a lamp-post. "'I can manage my own matters with him, curse him, but the woman you can punish more than I can.' "'You may safely leave her to me,' I replied, "'and if you take my advice you will let your husband alone. What can you do against a man with the reputation of a great actor and hosts of friends around him, while the law gives him the power to again consign you to a living death?' in the place you have escaped from i defy him she shouted in one of her paroxysms i defy you too and the whole world what can i do against him eh you will see you will see you will see and waving her thin arms wildly above her head she rushed away into the darkness of the street i was annoyed at not having come to a more decided understanding with her about getting my hands on the coveted casket but my annoyance was almost overpowered by the memory of the mad woman's terrible face when she spoke of her husband. I began to question my right to keep the secret of this woman's escape from her husband, as, if she should be guilty of any rash act, I should be morally responsible for it. Thinking thus, as I returned to the hotel, I decided on informing Smeldon first thing in the morning, and trust to the chapter of accidents which had so often befriended me for the possession of the jewel-case. 
I was disappointed in this, for I found on inquiry that Smeldon had left town on a pleasure trip with some friends, and Miss Chatteris was most likely one of the party. At least she was not at home, for I walked to the cottage boldly, and knocked at the door. It was opened by the demented and deceived wife, who laughed loudly as she recognised me. "'Ha, ha! Did you come for the box? Well, I don't mind letting you see it, for then you won't come back again. I don't want you here to-night. He's coming to supper again, and I have orders from my mistress, ha, 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 to prepare a lot of dainties for him.' I was too glad of the chance to balk her, as, to be prepared, I had provided myself with the key of the casket, as well as the empty trays which I carried in a parcel in my hand. The woman ushered me into the lady's private chamber, where, under a looking-glass, and carefully covered with a lace drapery, the poor creature pointed out the object of my search. As I had hoped and anticipated, my key opened the second jewel-case. Deftly I found the same spring which let the front of the box fall and without difficulty I drew out the trays that sparkled with the gems, real or false, I had last seen in our box at Westerfields. Then I opened my parcel and fitted my trays easily in the place of the others, which I folded in my brown paper and consigned to the pocket of my overcoat. The woman looked on in silence, but in evident pleasurable excitement, until the case was restored to its place on the toilet, and then, as we returned to the entrance hall, she laughed so loud and long as to frighten me. Hush, I said. You will arouse the whole neighbourhood, and then there will be suspicions. Mind you say nothing about what I have done, unless you want to lose your revenge on this fair lady. Oh, you may depend on me. I'm no fool. I'll come and tell you all about it some of these nights. You may conceive the delight of Westerfield at my arrival with the full trays in my possession. He had that morning received a communication from Miss Chatteris's solicitor claiming £985, the value of jewellery, herein specified, lost or detained by you after having been given into your care by Helena Chatteris. "'Oh, this is fun!' I cried as I read the letter. "'How stupid they will look when we hand them the full casket! £985 indeed!' I had an opinion from a professional jeweller on my way here, and they are every one paced, not worth twenty pounds. Don't reply to the lawyer until I have the pleasure of bringing the lady here to receive her gems. I troubled no more about the Chatteris affair until the following day. Indeed, I had no time, as the business on which I had gone to Dunedin was reaching a denouement, and I had to attend it. At about eleven o'clock next morning, however, I knocked at the lady's door, and was admitted by a young girl to her presence. The lady, in an elegant morning dish was reclining in a chair in the same apartment which was overlooked by the crevice in the closet, and that she was not an early riser was evinced by the still steaming coffee-pot on the breakfast tray at her side. "'This is a most unexpected honour, Mr. Uh, Smith,' she said with infinite condescension, and without paying her visitor the respect of rising from her seat. I think you owe your admission to the fact of my being very curious as to your possible business. Knowing my self-conceit so well as you do, after all those years' acquaintance, my valued public, you will readily believe that this speech riled me not a little, and undoubtedly changed my immediate intentions towards the imprudent speaker. Your curiosity shall soon be gratified, Miss Chatteris, I retorted. I came at the instance of my friend, Mr. Westerfield, to inform you that your Morocco-covered case is in his way, and that he will be glad if you will remove it. In his way? Did ever any one express such audacity? Does Mr. Westerfield think for one moment that I am such a fool as to take out of his possession, empty, a casket I left in his charge, full of valuable gems? No, sir. My solicitor has received instructions to proceed against Mr. Westerfield for the full value of my jewellery, which I lay at nine hundred and eighty-five pounds. We will see what a jury will say to your friend's breach of trust. And with the air of a tragedy queen, the speaker rose and haughtily bowed toward the door, as though to terminate the interview. The case will never go before a jury, madam, I said, coolly seating myself in the most comfortable armchair I could find. And if it did, it might puzzle the pseudo-Miss Chatteris to account for the duplicate of her jewel-case which has so many convenient trays and springs. The handsome face blanched to a sickly pallor, 
and she laid her pretty hands on the breakfast-table for support. "'You see, Miss Chatteris, that we know too much, and as pretty an attempt at swindling as was ever exposed shall be laid before the public if you do not come instantly with me and forgive Mr. Westerfield a receipt in full for your valuable imitation jewellery. She did not speak, but terror and astonishment were depicted plainly on her white face. You will please don your walking attire at once, Miss Chatteris, I added, as I rose and opened the door. I shall wait in the hall for you, and have the pleasure of escorting you to Mr. Westerfield's office, and it will be as well not to keep me too long waiting. There are many who can arrange and carry out a crime that have not the pluck to bravely meet its unanticipated consequences, and Miss Chatteris was one of the number. The fact of her being unaware of the extent of my knowledge only increased her terror, and the few words in which she attempted to reply to me convey little meaning, save an assurance that she only wanted to get her own property, and had no wish to in any way discommode Mr. Westerfield. My reply was the reiteration that I awaited her, and she hastened from the room. I followed her into the hall, and was pleased to encounter, on her way, after her mistress, the girl who had opened the door for me. "'What has become of the woman who was servant here yesterday?' I asked. "'She left this morning, sir. Miss Chatteris said she had some disagreement, and she left at once. She told me she would come back tonight for her clothes. Is there any message for her?' "'Oh, no, thank you. Please tell your mistress I am in a hurry.' In a very short time the lady appeared, and, hailing the first cab I saw, we were very soon deposited on the pavement in front of the Royal. Five minutes more brought us into the presence of Westerfield. He rose as we entered, and silently placed a chair for the lady. "'I really do not know what you require of me, Mr. Westerfield,' she said, as she lifted the veil off her white face. "'Your friend here has threatened me strangely, as if there were anything wrong in a woman wishing to regain possession of her own.' "'There would be nothing wrong whatever in that, madam,' I replied but it is something not only morally but legally wrong for a woman to deliberately try and commit a swindle to the extent of nine hundred and eighty-five pounds on a person she well knew to be innocent of the fraud imputed to him. Well, "'What do you want of me?' she asked, with a trembling lip. "'We want you to take possession of your so-called casket of jewellery,' I replied, "'and we want your receipt in full for the delivery of the same. Mr. Westerfield, will you kindly return to the lady the case she left in your charge?' Westerfield unlocked the safe and handed the box to me. With the key, which he had tied to it, I opened the affair and pushed it over the table to Miss Chatteris. Her eyes opened with puzzled astonishment as they wandered over the glittering contents of the tray which she lifted, and then, as a suspicion of the truth overwhelmed her, a hot flush burned up into her cheeks. Still, she tried to carry out her affectation of innocent ignorance. "'Why, these are my jewels, Mr. Westerfield,' "'Did you, after all, only remove them for a lark?' "'I'm not in the habit of larking, madam,' Westerfield returned stiffly, "'though it was doubtless in the perpetration of one "'that you substituted the empty trays for the full ones "'after you had left the case in my charge. "'I will trouble you for the receipt my friend mentioned.' "'And he pushed writing materials before her. "'She gave me one look of fierce rage, and then began to write. "'Received from Mr. Westerfield, quite safe. The casket of jewellery. Imitation jewellery, if you please, I interrupted. We have submitted your rubbish to a jeweller, and there is not value for fifteen pounds in your Morocco box. She was evidently boiling with suppressed passion, but amended the receipt, and then rose and lifted her jewellery. I will find out who you are, she said to me, as her fine eyes flashed angrily and threateningly, and though you seem to have the best of it now, the day may come when I shall pay you with interest for your smart interference. Don't go until I have given you the information you seem anxious for, I retorted, as I placed myself between her and the door. That will inform you who and what I am, Mrs. Barnsley, and for the rest I have a warrant out for your arrest in my pocket, executed at the instance of your unfortunate husband. She fell back into her seat and stared at the detective's card I held before her eyes on the table. All at once, the full force of her position seemed to overwhelm the miserable creature. She did not attempt to deny her identity, but only gasped out as she lifted her terrified eyes to mine. "'What does he want to arrest me for?' "'Perhaps to punish you for swindling him out of a large sum of money. Perhaps to incarcerate you in a lunatic asylum. How should I know? At all events, there is the warrant. You are at liberty to examine it as closely as you like.' 
"'Are you going to arrest me?' she asked, as she tremblingly pushed the paper from her and rose from her seat. "'Not at present,' I replied. "'I have sent for your husband and expect him in a day or two. You may go home, but mind and stop there, for there is no chance of escape. The police have strict orders to watch you, and your cottage will be under the strictest supervision until I receive Mr. Barnsley's personal instructions.' Without a word she turned to the door which I opened for her. She still held the Morocco case against her side, and as she passed the door the box struck violently against the post and staggered her. She did not seem to feel it, however, but went on blindly, like one struck numb, until she disappeared from my view. "'There goes as completely checkmated villainy as ever lived,' I said as I closed the door. "'And not a bit too soon for you, Westerfield. You look like a ghost.' "'I feel ill,' he replied. It is sickening to see a woman place herself in such a position, and that fool of a Smeldon to be in league with such a swindler. I was told today that Smeldon was a confirmed gambler, I said, but I am more concerned about the danger he is in from the escaped wife. I am going to hunt him up now and tell him plainly that she is in Dunedin. Having ascertained where the actor was staying, I made my way there just in time to catch him at lunch. Of course he had not had time to see Miss Chatteris, as I may still continue to call her, since my late interview with her, so that he was quite ignorant of my acquaintance with his private affairs. I found him in the billiard-room knocking about the balls, disconsolate for someone to stake a crown against him, and his gloomy face lighted up as I entered. "'By George! Smith! You're a perfect godsend! I'm regularly tripped. Have a game?' "'I'm sorry. I have not time, Smeldon, but I have a few words to say to you in private. Will you step out on the veranda with me?' He laid down the cue and looked at me with some curiosity. "'Something about Westerfield,' he inquired. "'You and he seem to be very thick. Has Madame come?' "'No. My business concerns yourself alone,' I replied, as we gained the open air. "'And before I tell it, I must assure you that it is no wish to interfere in your private affairs, but a real anxiety for your safety that makes me give you the hint I am about to do.' "'My private affairs? Anxiety for my safety?' he repeated, looking suspiciously into my face. Doubtless he fancied I had become acquainted with his connection with Miss Chatteris, and feared I might know more of it than would be good for his character to divulge. Yes, by mere accident I have discovered that your wife has escaped from Cremorne Asylum and is here in Dunedin. I strongly advise you to see that she is again put in confinement, for the poor woman is decidedly mad, and, from her feelings toward you, I consider your life is not safe while she is at large. Smeldon's face flushed hotly whether from anger or some less understood feeling, I could not determine from his words. "'I am very much obliged to you,' he said, "'and shall see to it, though I really cannot guess how you have become so intimate with my domestic arrangements.' "'They are the subject of gossip, even in Dunedin,' I replied. "'But I think you ought to know that my name is not Smith. I am a member of the Melbourne Detective Force. And now, let me beg of you to put your affair into the hands of the police. I have heard the woman threaten you, and she is dangerous.' I am not afraid of her, he returned rather sulkily, and I cannot help thinking you are mistaken. If the person you allude to had been watching or following me, I must have seen her. You have seen and spoken to her. She was engaged by the person known as Miss Chatteris as general servant, and only left her cottage and service this morning. Now, however, that I have warned you, my business is done, and with a salutation I walked away and left him. Little I guessed how and when I should next look upon his face. I was beginning to be very anxious for Mr. Barnsley's arrival. He had replied instantly to my telegram with the information that he should be with me as soon as the boat could cross. I knew, however, that it would be, at least, two days ere he could possibly arrive, and during those two days all the responsibility of Miss Chatteris's safekeeping was on my head. My own business, too, was completed, and I was, in duty bound, to return and report myself at Melbourne. I believed I could trust to the vigilance of the Dunedin police during the day, but I determined to watch the Chatteris cottage every night myself until I received personal instructions from Mr. Barnsley. It was a cold dark night as I joined the constable on duty near Miss Chatteris's cottage. The town clock had just struck eleven as I left the hotel, and as that was about the time supper appeared to be usually served, if I might judge from the night I peeped through the closet, I was wondering if Smeldon had again joined the fair impostor at that meal. "'Have you seen anyone going in?' I asked the policeman. "'Yes, a gentleman about ten minutes ago. 
There is a light in the dining-room window at the side there. Even as he spoke, a dark figure passed us quickly and silently, and entered the back gate through which I had gained admittance. Something in the movement suggested the crazy wife to me, and I had a great mind to follow her. But after the warning I had already given Snowdon, I did not feel warranted in again interfering. How often I vainly wished afterwards that I had done so. An hour, or perhaps less, afterwards, as I was standing at the corner, looking at the light in the window, and debating with myself if it would not be prudent to try and get a peep at my fair charge through that closet, there came to my ears the noise of a great crash, and all at once the air was pierced by a succession of the most horrifying shrieks that ever issued from a woman's throat. You may be sure I lost no time, then, in running through the back gate and into the lighted kitchen. There was nothing in this apartment to account for the noise, which had now entirely ceased. Mrs. Smeldon was seated quietly at the table, eating her supper, and the girl who had opened the door for me in the morning was lying on an old colonial sofa, sound asleep. "'What is the matter?' I asked. "'What was the cause of those shrieks?' "'Oh, the loving couple are having a bit of a row,' she returned carelessly. "'There's been too much drink flying about. Even the girl there is drunk. It was a lucky thing I returned for my shawl, for she nearly set the place on fire after she took in their supper.' This did not satisfy me, and I hastened into the house. On opening the door of the dining-room, a scene presented itself that I have never yet been able to recall without a shudder of horror. The table, with its glittering contents of plate and crystal, lay overturned upon the floor, while the full light of a triple gas-burner fell upon the awful face of Miss Chatteris crouching in a corner opposite the door. The fallen table and chairs being between me and the floor, I did not at first see the object from which every nerve of the terrified being seemed to recoil, and on which her eyes glared with the fascinated horror. Making my way nearer, among the debris, I saw grovelling, or rather, writhing at her feet, in the agonies of a terrible death, that actor, Smeldon. A horrible death indeed! He had clutched his accomplice's dress, and was, in the short intervals of mortal agony, trying to drag himself up by it while his glaring eyes sought hers in a most terror-stricken and desperate entreaty he could not utter in words. Foam gathered thickly on his lips in his strong but fruitless effort to speak, and then again would come one of his awful fits of convulsion, in which his back was elevated into an arch, while his feet and head alone touched the floor. A fearful death by poison! I had seen the effects of strychnine before, and recognised them now. The wretched woman, who seemed paralysed with terror, took no notice of my presence, even as I dragged the body from her vicinity, and raised his head on one of the cushions of the sofa. Her horrified eyes only followed it, as a strong shiver passed over her frame, and she sank in a huddled, sitting posture on the carpet. But as I heard the sound of the mad woman's voice behind me, her eyes were lifted to the face of Smeldon's wife, and a succession of shrieks again burst from her lips. She knows me, the handsome darling. How nice she looks there in her silks and laces. He's been telling her who his wife was, eh? She knows that I am Mrs. Smeldon, the pretty dear does, and the poor fellow's supper has disagreed with him. Do send for the doctor if it's not too late. Ha, ha! I'm afraid it is too late. What a pity he could not live long enough to put her into the asylum I went mad at. Good-bye, my love. "'Get out of this, you fiend!' I cried, as an awful and last convulsion seized the dying man. "'I believe in my heart you have poisoned the man, and, by heaven, if you have, you shall hang for it.' "'Clever Detective Sinclair!' she returned in her still-mocking tones. "'I leave my dear husband and his new mad woman in your care. May ye all be happy!' And she disappeared at the door with a mocking curtsy. By this time the constable on duty had found his way to the scene, and I dispatched him instantly for a doctor, though I knew Smeldon would be dead long before the services of one could be procured. And seeing that nothing could be done for the poor fellow, I turned my attention to the woman. She was still crouched in the corner, with glaring eyes and rigid features. But as I began to lift the overturned furniture, and lay some of the broken articles again on the table, in order to make room for reseating the miserable-looking creature in a chair, her eye caught one glittering object, and the whole expression of her countenance changed as she recognised it. Without any assistance, she struggled to her feet with a joyful exclamation, and, 
Seizing the article, she sat down on her chair with it on her lap, and with the delight of a child on the recovery of a favourite toy, opened it. Need I add that it was her jewel-case the woman had regained possession of? I have witnessed many terrible scenes during my long professional connection, but one more humiliating to human nature than this I fail to recall. There lay the corpse on the sofa, stiffening in the fearful contortion of an agonised death, and there, opposite, but seemingly unconscious of the dread object, reclined the silken-robed, beautiful woman, decking herself with all the glittering contents of her casket. She had placed the tiara of imitation diamonds in her hair. The white shoulders were wreathed with sparkling gems. Wrists and fingers and bosom were loaded with glittering colours, and with a satisfied smile on her pale lips, Mrs. Barnsley sat proudly in her seat, and muttered words to herself, evidently of condescension and congratulation. The wretched murderess was right. Her rival was mad. Let us charitably hope that she had been mad from the beginning, and her wicked conduct but the result of a diseased brain. Of course there was an inquest on Smeldon, which resulted in finding of, died from the effects of strychnine, administered by some person or persons unknown, though more than suspicion pointed strongly to the dead man's wife. Vainly, however, was she searched for by the police of all the colonies. The mad woman seemed to have disappeared as she had appeared, like a shadow. Poor Barnsley carried his miserable wife back to Victoria, and for the few remaining years of her life devoted one of his homesteads to the sole use of herself and suitable attendants. She was quite harmless so long as she was permitted to wear her jewels and adorn herself with new and showy attire. This was years ago, and I am glad to tell you that in a second marriage Mr. Barnsley found the happiness he had only dreamed of in his first. The failure of his anticipated season in Dunedin nearly ruined my friend Westerfield, but the fact that he is now a wealthy and successful manager in London may assure you of his eventual success. End of story